Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Language. Today I'm talking to Michal Kissin about his new book, From Utterances to Speech Acts. The book sets out a new philosophically and empirically motivated approach to the study of speech acts, which aims to address some of the shortcomings of existing accounts and to accommodate the findings from experimental work on developmental pragmatics. In this interview, we discuss some of the central planks of this theory and situate it within the larger, although recently neglected, tradition of research in this area. Welcome to New Books in Language. Today I'm talking to Michal Kissin about his new book, From Utterances to Speech Acts, in which he sets out theoretical and empirical evidence in favour of a new analysis of locutionary force. Michal, how did you come to be working on speech acts? Uh, hi. When I started um, as a master's student in linguistics, I got interested, very interested in pragmatics, and um, it was um, the beginnings of... Uh, all new lines of research in pragmatics, uh, which started to be much more cognitively oriented. However, what um, what was surprising at that time is that everyone seemed to be interested with uh, topics like implicature and presupposition. And one of the big, uh, huge uh, parts of pragmatics of traditional pragmatic speech acts was um, relatively left aside. So I um, I just started to think um, how this topic could be researched from this new cognitive perspective. And then um, after my master's thesis in Cambridge, I got back to the University Libre de Bruxelles in Brussels, where I'm still now, and I decided just to um, take this as a, top, as a topic for my PhD dissertation. And um, basically, this is how I started to um, think about this, this subject, about uh, speech acts. And um, eventually, this is how I ended up uh, writing a book, a book about it. So this is, this is a brief uh, glimpse of how it happened. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Did you come to any conclusions about why the field had been so neglected from a cognitive perspective? Uh, I guess there are are two reasons uh, to it. One is um, has to do with the sociology of the field and um, uh, because um, one of the uh, greatest names in the study of speech act is of course Searle but from the linguist's point of view, uh, Searle's theory um, is was seen as um, a bit artificial and also quite disconnected from uh, questions about processing and the cognitive underpinning of interpretation. And the second reason is uh, that um, simply... Uh, Analyzing declarative sentences and assertions is complicated enough, and uh, so people just, I guess, thought that 
they will leave um, other speech acts, uh, such as directives, that is, commands and requests or questions or promises, just they would leave them aside for, um, you know, for the future when things will get clearer with about, about the pragmatics of declar- declarative sentences and utterances. So this is my guess about the reasons of this neglect. Um, I should say, however, that um, in recent years, for three or four years in different fields of pragmatics and philosophy of language and um, semantics, uh, there has been a renewed interest in, in various kinds of speech acts and non-declarative sentence types. Yeah, indeed. Um, in your book, you expand the coverage from just declaratives to uh, some other types of speech act types. In fact, you discuss what you categorize as constatives, directives, and commissives. Your theory identifies these as corresponding to three uh, fairly fundamental but distinct aspects of our general communicative competence. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's right. Um, one of the issues um, about uh, different theories of speech acts is that um, sometimes they tend to get lost within questions of how classify different types of speech acts and how distinguish between uh, major and minor uh, types of speech acts and whether apologies should be, for instance, a distinct uh, uh, kind of speech acts or not. I I didn't want to get involved in in that question. um, And I just think that providing information and trying to provide other people with reasons to do other things are two really fundamental uh, ways to use language. And um, in the the beginning of the book, I assume that this is presupposed and mutually agreed on. But what I try to show during the book is is that we really can um, assume that this is the case for deep cognitive and linguistic reasons. As for commissives, I included them. So commissives are uh, speech acts we use to commit ourselves to do something, uh, promises, but also threats, offers, um, things like that. So the reason why I included these is because there has been some dispute in, in pragmatics on whether these kind of speech acts are culture-specific. So um, whether uh, promises should be accounted for by looking at specific cultural institutions, uh, whereas speech acts like assertions or, or testimonies or requests and commands, these should be analyzed um, from a cognitive uh, Transcultural perspective. So this, uh, so for instance, uh, in their uh, really, really well-known uh, books, Perber Wilson in Relevance, uh, they say that promises are really a cultural um, type of speech act, and um, there are some reasons to think that some a priori reasons to think that this is not right because. Um, Basically, we find uh, this kind of 
uh, linguistic behavior to commit oneself to do something all around uh, the world, across different cultures and different languages, and also because uh, children tend to acquire uh, and the, the mastery of these uh, speech acts um, along really uh, uh, clear developmental steps which do not seem to depend on uh, their cultural environment. So what I wanted to show is that these kind of speech acts can be um, accounted uh, within a cognitive and naturalistic perspective as well as um, uh, what I call constatives, that is, uh, speech acts aimed at um, conveying information or directives, that is, speech acts, uh, which, uh, which are used to influence uh, other behavior, to attempt to influence others' behavior. Um, as you mentioned there, and also indicated in your introduction, you, you're quite sceptical about the uh, use of these finer-grained taxonomies of speech acts. Um, and you talked there about these presupposing a lot of theoretical commitments. Uh, do you feel that that's actually something that's actively unhelpful in terms of uh, obfuscating the kinds of psychological generalizations that we can make? Or do you feel that that's just perhaps those, those taxonomies are too advanced for our current level of understanding and that's something that we should um, postpone to future study? I, um, I think that the, the problem with speech classifications is that they really depend on... Um, the theoretical commitments uh, people who establish these classifications have. Um, I, I have a, a recent paper that, that just came out in a handbook of speech act where I really uh, address that question. I'm not sure that it's useless to, to, to think about different fine-grained types of speech act. For instance, if you look at um, the world's languages, uh, there are languages which have really specific minor uh, sentence types. For instance, you have languages which have a, what's called a preventive mood, which is specifically used for warnings. Um, so it's not the imperative. The imperative is used for commands, but, but uh, preventive is used for warnings. So, so it, it, it might be useful uh, you know, to ask these questions, how warnings are different from commands and uh, and why, why this entail, what this, uh, this entails, but I do think that um, from a purely cognitive perspective, what we should be looking at is the uh, translinguistic and cross-cultural processes that that shape our practice of handling speech acts. So the the reasons why we have this three major or four major uh, ways to use languages. So um, I just think that we shouldn't get lost in this classification uh, issue. Also because sometimes it, it, it tends to, to, to become com completely superficial. Uh, people, uh, it, it, it was the case, especially in, in the 80s and late 70s, where people really are, started to argue which classification is the best. I, I don't think that there is a good, uh, one good classification of minor speech acts. That, that depends on what you want to do. Sure. Um, turning then, if I may, to your own specific proposal. In the first chapter, you distinguish illocutionary acts from locutionary and perlocutionary acts. 
Uh, but then you depart from some of the traditional precedents by arguing that not all locutionary acts have a direct locutionary force at all, which you mentioned is crucial for your account. Could you tell us about that insight? Yes, so, so um, one thing I, I did when I uh, started to, to work on Speech Act was to get back to Austin, who, who was in the first... Uh, the father of, of, of speech act theory, although he didn't call it uh, like, the, like this. And um, what I realized is that Austin's major, one of the major insights was that any utterance can be interpreted in different, uh, at different levels. Um, and what I try to do in this first chapter is to uh, take this proposal seriously and um, in a bit kind of weird way from a chronological point of view because um, I think that Austin's major problem was that he had a theory of action because he he had a theory of action which um, was in fact incompatible with with his theory of of, of uh, speech act of how to do things with words, and so I I, I use Davidson uh, theory of action to to get a better understanding of of these different levels of meaning distinguished by Austin, and so uh, in a nutshell, um, Davidson theory of action uh, if if you don't want to get uh, really uh, Technical is that um, what what is there out in the, in the world are just events. So uh, when I raise my hand to vote, for instance, what what is there ontologically speaking, just a physical event, and then we can interpret it in different ways. In some context, it would be just I raise my hand, but in some other, I will vote uh, for uh, I don't know for someone to to be chair or something like that. And Austin's idea was that at the basic level, what an utterance is, is just a production of sounds. It just, you know, you, you, you produce sounds and, uh, these reach your, uh, these, these sounds reach your, your hearer, but there is nothing more to it. And this is what Austin, um, called the phonetic act. And then sometimes, these sounds will have um, a structure which fits some syntactic morphological setup of a language. So the, this this would this will be um, a phatic act. Uh, but the fact that um, an utterance, a production of sounds, uh, has this, some morphosyntactic uh, specific structure doesn't mean that it has propositional content. It doesn't mean that it represents uh, something. Uh, For instance, I could be practicing my French and I say something like il chante, which means uh, he sings, or je chante, I sing, but it doesn't convey anything. It, but but at this level, my utterance still already has some um, morphosyntactic structure. Now, it may happen that, and this is what usually happens, that we're in a context where you are, or as a hearer, you're also able to interpret uh, the syntactic structure as conveying, as having a certain meaning, as, as having a, a propositional content. And um, 
one of the uh, major contributions of the last 20 years in pragmatic was to understand how context uh, contributes to fleshing out this this content from 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 uh, this syntactic skeleton, so to speak. And this is what I think is right to call the locutionary act. Now, at that, at that point in contemporary philosophy of language and pragmatics, people to 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 say, okay, once we've we, we, we've reached um, this level where a syntactic structure has been enriched as to get to some content, well, we just got from linguistic meaning or phatic act, as, as to speak in Austin terms, to the level of speech acts. Now we have an assertion or something like that. So, for instance, if I say, uh, I think, but you understand that this is what, what, I'm, what I'm meaning is that I, Mihail Kissing, uh, I think usually, or, or, or if I say I'm singing, that I'm singing now in Brussels, uh, today, the, uh, the uh, 9th of September, then um, I'm just performing a speech act. And so uh, you write about, about it. This is one of, of the major claims of, that, of the book, is that's, that's not right. Um, there are many instances where we perform utterances that, are, that have a propositional content, but they're not used to perform any literal, at least, elocutionary act. And, of course, the, one of the, mo- the, the most obvious points is irony. If I um, say, ironically, that something like, um, you know, we just we went to see a movie and it's mutually obvious to both of us that, um, you know, the, 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 the movie wasn't good at all. And I say something, uh, this is the best movie I've seen in the last five years. You really need context to understand the propositional content of, of my utterance. You need the content to uh, the context to understand that this movie is the movie we we've just uh, been watching, and the uh, uh, that, that the last five years it's the last five years uh, relative to to, to 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 the time of utterance. But uh, you certainly not. Uh, interpret my utterance as being an assertion that I, I, uh, this was that that this was the best movie I've I've, I've seen uh, the last five years. And um, the thing is that uh, the, these cases are not limited to um, to declar- declarative sentences. We have also these with imperatives. Uh, the example I give in the book it's an example borrowed from um, Wilson and Sperber. You just spilled some wine on my carpet, and you you know clumsily attempt to wipe it off, and you're actually you're just getting things worse. And I, and I say, go ahead, ruin my carpet. Again, I'm using an imper- an imperative here, but I'm not giving you an order in any sense. But still, you need the context to understand what my carpet refers to, etc. And Thinking in this way actually uh, clarifies a lot of things. Um, for instance, um, it helps um, to think about what, what Jakobson called fighting communication, but uh, we can call platitudes, you know, things we just say for saying something. If I, you know, we're just 
out there, it's raining, and I say, wow, it's pouring out now. Well, you know, both of us, we know what, what, what's going on, so there is no assertion made there. But clearly, there is, a, there is something more than just sentence meaning. It's something more. We have propositional meaning, but no speech act involved or performed, not literally at least. Can I clarify? So when you talk about literal speech acts in, in this sense, or direct elocution, you're referring to ones that uh, use use the um, declarative content of the sentence in some way, or am I, am I misunderstanding? What, what I mean by um, direct and literal is the speech acts uh, whose content corresponds to the content of the corresponding locutionary act. That is, that is, these are the speech acts which have as a propositional content, the content which has been fleshed out from the sentence meaning. So, uh, for instance, if both of us, we know that if Peter is invited at a party, then uh, Mary will never, never uh, attend that party. And, you know, you ask me, uh, is Mary coming tomorrow at the party tomorrow? And I say, um, uh, Peter is coming. Well, here I have, have, have performed two speech acts. I have performed one, direct one. I, I asserted that Peter is coming, but also asserted indirectly that Mary won't be there because every time you can infer that because every time, uh, Peter is some, somewhere, Mary won't be there. So why, why calling this indirect? Because the content of the indirect speech act has not been fleshed out from the corresponding sentence meaning. What happens for irony is basically, it's more or less the same thing when I say, uh, this is the best movie I've seen in the last five years. What I want to convey is that the movie was awful, and this is the indirect indirectly conveyed, directly performed speech act. The only difference here is that I do not perform any direct speech act. I do not assert anything directly. Um, so I hope this, this distinction, uh, it, it, it actually it's a distinction that I, I think is really important, uh, and so I, I hope it, it gets across uh, in the book. Uh. Yes, absolutely. And um, What I wondered was, was how it related to uh, sort of traditional approaches to um, certain kinds of speech act that you, that you don't discuss um, things like greetings where the surface form arguably doesn't seem to have propositional content for example. Uh, it seems like that, those are also amenable to the, the kind of analysis where they have no direct elocution, although I don't know if that's what you'd prefer for those. Uh, actually this is, this is a hard question and um as I say uh, in the introduction to the book, is I just leave those aside for the moment because I'm not um, certain how to treat them. Uh, one of the reasons is that things like greetings might be thought um, to be uh, conventional, uh, culturally dependent. So it's um, I'm not entirely sure whether... Um, they require the same kind of account I try to put forward for uh, directive uh, constatives and commissives for assertion orders and promises, or whether they should uh, be uh, analyzed 
at least partly invoking some uh, cultural conventions. So, um, I'm, yeah, the, the quick answer is that uh, I don't know yet. Oh. Fair enough. Um, returning to your own proposal, uh, in Chapter 2 you discuss intentional states for the capital I, and you propose another distinction that's, I think, fundamental to your account, that between potential and non-potential content. Um, this essentially places a boundary between information about the world and information about the speaker's beliefs. Is that correct? That, that's that. It, that's correct. It's it's um, it's indeed um, a fundamental uh, part of my account uh, because if we um, distinguish between, uh, on the one hand, sentence types, so phatic acts, so it's, and on the other hand, elocutionary acts, so speech acts. And in between, we have something else, which is locutionary act, which I claim that we have something in between just bare sentence meaning and the speech act that has been performed. Then we need to characterize somehow uh, this intermediate locutionary level. And clearly, uh, there is something different between an imperative and a declarative. And it's not only different at the level of the sentence type, and it's not only different at the level of the speech act performed, there is something different at the level, at this intermediate level, if I'm right. So my idea was that what's different for between a declarative sentence used to perform the locutionary, a certain locutionary act, and an imperative sentence used to perform uh, a locutionary act is that they have different modes of presentation. Um, so, for instance, if I uh, say uh, Chris, uh, call me, and I uh, Chris, you 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 are calling me, or if I say uh, call me, the proposition expressed should be more less, should be something similar. Uh, it's something like uh, Chris is calling me. Uh, at that time. But what's different is that this proposition is presented under a different mode. And my idea was that um, what happens is really the same thing as between wanting something, desiring something, like wanting you to call me at 1 p.m. and believing that you are calling me at 1 p.m., or that you will call me at 1 p.m. And the distinction here is between mental states or intentional states, that is, intentional state with, 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 with an uppercase is uh, mental states that are about something, that are, they are about content uh, out there in the world. So the distinction between potential and non-potential one is basically the distinction between mental states that have a content that is neither true nor false as far as the current state of information goes, and between mental states whose content is true or false according to what what is your information state. So, for instance, if I um, believe that you are located um, in Los Angeles now, well, this is something that for me is true or is it, it might turn out to be uh, wrong, and I think actually it's wrong. But 
crucially, it's something, the function of these mental states to provide me with information about the world. It has better to be true. But then imagine that I want to, uh, I have the desire to go to LA uh, this summer. Well, as far as my information state goes right now, it's neither true nor false. And for this reason, I can have incompatible desires. I can want to um, have the desire to go to LA this summer, but I can also have this, the desire to stay in Brussels this summer. And at some point I will have to decide between these two conflicting desires. But as far as, I, as, as my current information state goes, these are uh, neither true nor false. So these are what I call potential mental states. Now, um, it's, exa uh, it's exactly the opposite with beliefs. If I believe that you're in L.A. right now, uh, I cannot believe at the same time that you are not in L.A. At, uh, uh, right now. Uh, this is because these mental states are not potential. They are either true or they are false. If I realize that they are false, then I will exclude them for, um, from uh, my beliefs. And actually, this distinction is really really important if you think of how um, organisms function. If you have an organism that is capable of, of planning, of planning some action, of general planning, then this organism needs to have these potential uh, mental states. Because if you want to plan things, what you need to have is some representations of, of alternatives. Uh, you, you, you need to to, to be capable of um, deciding between different scenarios and some scenarios uh, that you prefer to others, but it, it's really crucial that before taking the decision, before you take that decision, these scenarios are neither true nor false. You don't know. And so this is, this is uh, basically the idea of this distinction, and I try to to show that it it's it's really um, plausible, uh, also from philosophical point of view. Um, and then my argument next is to say that basically we have exactly the same thing between uh, different kinds of locution reacts, between different kinds of utterances. One crucial property of uh, the imperative mood of, of utterances that are in imperative is that they cannot be judged as true or, or as false. If I tell you, uh, sit down, you cannot answer that's not true, or that's not, or uh, that's true, or that, uh, I believe it's true. But it's not only for orders. If I say something like, uh, sleep well, uh, or be careful. Um, I'm using its imperative sentence type in, in languages other than English. It's like in French, it would be clearly an imperative. And again, you cannot say that's true or that's, that's false. It's just a good wish. It's not, it has nothing to do with the, the condition of performing com commands or, 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 or requests, but still you cannot answer it's true or false. And so the idea is that uh, what we have is different functions. Uh, on the one hand, you have non-potential mental states, and their function is to provide the mind with um, propositional content which 
is either true or false. And we have, on the same side of the distinction, locutionary acts, utterances, like those cast in declarative, in declarative mood, which have as a function to um, provide you with information that can be assessed as true or as false. On the other side of the divide, we have mental states, such as desires, and the function of these mental states is just to um, provide you with a state of affairs which which is neither true nor false. And on the same side of the divide, we have um, utterances like imperatives, which have as a function to um, express a propositional content which is neither true nor false, uh, relative, relative to uh, what we currently know. And so, is basically, uh, this is um, how we can define uh, this mode of presentation uh, on locutionary acts. So, we have the same kind of mode of presentation on beliefs and on utterances cast in declarative mood, and the same kind of potential mode of presentation on desires and uh, utterances cast in imperative. Is it uh, generally the case, then, that a particular sentence type, like the imperative uh, form, is, is internally consistent in expressing, in, in this case, um, potential content? Yeah, so, 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 yes, so, so, so the, the idea is that um, different sentence type, different morphosyntactic structures um, have a function, and um, the, the function here is taken in an evolutionary sense. So there is a reason why they evolved in our practice, why we keep using them. And um, so my idea is that uh, one of the reasons why we keep using uh, imperatives is because their function is to express these kind of potential contents. As I say in the book, it's not the only kind of morphosyntactic structure that that is that expresses potential contents. Subjunctives and uh, what's called the realist moods in different uh, kind of types of descriptions usually or very often uh, express uh, these kind of potential contents, content, contents that cannot be true or false as far as, as um, the current state of information goes. So um, what, what's, what's really consistent uh, about imperatives across languages is that they never ever can be used to express something that is either true or known to be false. This doesn't mean that um, uh, all languages have imperatives. Actually, there are languages with no imperative mood. Uh, but in languages which have an imperative mood, they would have this mood which is specified to express potential contents. And now, uh, the, there is a good reason why, when you have this kind of morphosyntactic structure, which can express only things that are neither true nor false, that you you'd use this to um, perform directive speech acts, why you would use it to uh, perform uh, orders or requests. Uh, because you can order um, or request something 
only something that that's not certain, which which it, which is which has not been true, or known to be true, or, or known to be uh, impossible to do. So, if you want to provide the your addressee with a reason to do something, well, providing the addressee with with a representation of a state of affairs where he's or she's uh, doing something, but this state of affairs is this representation, the represented uh, state is is neither neither true nor false. Then this is a really good way to 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 perform um, a directive speech act. It's not the only one, but it's 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 a really really good way. Presumably, there's more to being an imperative than just expressing uh, potential content. But presumably, the fact that uh, requests can be expressed using any of these various different means to. Uh, for expressing potential content doesn't mean that these these means don't have other differences. Yes. So 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 um, so so the 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 uh, the issue of um, uh, the structure and the the semantics of uh, the imperative mood is a really complicated one. And um, as I say in the book, this is not something I really wanted to solve. And um, uh, we, 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 we just have a book coming out from Cambridge University Press with Mark Jerry, and it's called Imperatives, where we really specifically look at the, at the structure in the uh, theories of the semantics of imperatives. What I just wanted to do in, in the book is to um, emphasize that um, on the one hand, there is something specific to imperatives, and this is the fact that they present the content as potential, but that the um, elocution force, the fact that they are not that that they they are sometimes very often used as directives, this is not something built within their meaning. This is something that comes from the way they're used. There are many um, instances where um, imperatives are used with no uh, directive force. Um, so the, the clearest examples are good wishes. And on the other hand, we have um, a lot of cases where um, you have um, a request or a directive speech act, which is performed using a non-imperative sentence. So clearest examples are things like, uh, could you open the door? Or, um, you know, if I'm uh, your boss and I say something like, you're leaving tomorrow, or things even such as feet of the table, or something like that, substantials. And um, so um, the other idea of the book is then that what makes you interpret an utterance as a certain kind of speech act, let's, let's take the example of directive speech act, is not decoding something within the sentence meaning. It's not something that's conventionally encoded within the uh, morphosyntactic structure. It is the role that this utterance can play relative to what is mutually um, known or accepted as true. And with the case of, of uh, for directive speech acts, what I say is that if Relative to what is mutually accepted as true, related to our conversational background, an utterance is a reason to act for the addressee, a reason for the addressee to bring about the truth of a certain propositional content, then this utterance is a directive speech act.
<laughs> now, being a reason to do something doesn't mean that it's uh, an effective reason. It has just to be a sufficient reason. So, for instance, if you tell me, if you say, uh, close the door, it doesn't mean that I will necessarily close it. But if our common knowledge is such that I know that it's possible that it could be a reason for me, good reason, an efficient reason to close the door, then I will interpret your utterance as a reason uh, to close the door, that is, as a directive speech act whose content is to close the door. Now, in this case, in the example I just gave, the content of the of the of the directive speech act is exactly the same as the content of the locutionary act. It, it is Mihal closes the door at some point. But if you say uh, if you have things like uh, could you close the door? I, I, I could interpret this utterance again related to what's stated, what, what's what's uh, mutually accepted, as a reason to close the door. But this time, would say that we will say that the speech act is indirect because uh, its content is different from the locutionary content, from what uh, what has been can, can be fleshed out directly from. Uh, the sentence meaning. Indeed, yeah. In parallel to the analysis of directive speech acts as reason to act, you uh, discuss in Chapter 3 constative speech acts analysed as reasons to believe. Um, what are the kind of consequences of this versus traditional accounts? So, um, the problem is that we are kind of struck between two extremes. On the one hand, you have people who would say that um, the only thing that assertions or constitutive speech acts in general do is to represent the world as it is. This is too weak. Clearly, uh, there is more to assertion uh, than just representing the world as it is. Um, and for these people, for instance, uh, it's really hard to make sense of, of um, self-addressed uh, utterances. You know, if I say, oh, God, it's, it's raining again, or I'm, I'm running late, and I say it to myself, I clearly represent, you know, something. Uh, the world has been in certain ways, but it's, it seems quite artificial to say that it would be an assertion. On the other hand, there is the most standard and classic um, uh, Stalker's theory, and their um, successful assertion is the addition of a content to a common ground. So if I say it's raining, if I assert it successfully, then now it's mutually accepted by uh, both of us that it's raining. Now, this is too strong. This is confusing, as I argue, elocutionary and perlocutionary levels. So the, the perlocutionary level is a level of, in a nutshell, of causal consequences of an utterance on the addressee. There are a lot of cases where we intend to perform a successful assertion, but we don't necessarily intend to make the, the, the hero believe the content of that assertion. Uh, for instance, uh, you know, uh, perhaps I want to make you 
some proposal, uh, but I, what I really hope is that you will turn that proposal down, and uh, because this is this is useful for for me, I don't know for some other reasons. And yet I, I still intend to, to 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 make this proposal. So uh, the idea here is that if you define assertion and uh, constitutive speech acts as reasons to believe then you are just in between these two extreme positions. So my idea is basically that if an utterance related to the common ground provides the addressee with a reason to believe something, that means that this is an assertion. It doesn't mean, however, that here we'll necessarily end up believing that. So for instance, take an example of what but is not an assertion. We 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 are in this we just watched that movie, and you know, and I uh, that that I really hate that movie, and I know that you know, etc. And I say this is the best movie I've seen in the last five years. Here, the common ground is such that clearly my utterance cannot be a reason for you to believe uh, that this is the best uh, movie I've seen in the last five years. For that reason, this utterance will not be interpreted as an assertion. No. Imagine, by contrast, that um, you will never believe that, I don't know, Austin was right about speech acts. But I still, I believe that he's right. And I can say, tell you, um, you know, Austin was right about speech acts. Now, there is nothing in common we believe, there is nothing mutually accepted about Austin. So my utterance is still an assertion because it relates to what is mutually accepted as true, it is a reason to believe uh, that Austin was right. It's, it will certainly not be an effective reason for you to believe that, but it's a reason to believe related to the common ground nevertheless. And so it is still um, an assertion. So this is um, basically uh, where I think that, that, that uh, my definition of constitutive speech acts as reasons to believe um, helps to solve some traditional uh, problems. Indeed, yes. And one other problem you discussed is the, is the idea that complex, multi-layered intentions are always present in the understanding of speech acts. Uh, you devote a chapter to the developmental and pathological evidence that bears upon the treatment of speech acts. Would it be fair in your view to say that the data from populations with autism spectrum disorders falsifies this claim of complex, multi-level uh, intention representation? Yeah, so so, so that, that that's uh, that's right. I um, because of what well, we mentioned just at the beginning of the interview, because uh, speech acts have been quite neglected uh, in cognitive pragmatics, um, people just tend to think that um, any account of speech acts should run uh, along Ryan lines. So basically. Uh, any uh, interpretation, uh, interpretive root of, of an utterance that ends up with interpreting this utterance as a speech act has to involve um, the attribution to the addressee of the intention uh, to make some uh, communicative, uh, some informative intention manifest, etc., etc. So at least a, a four-layered uh, uh, communicative intention. Now. What um, what I believe is that the way I define speech acts from a really theoretical point of view 
um, basically requires much less, at least in uh, that proportion or in a great proportion of cases, to understand that an utterance is a constitutive or a direct speech act. All you have to do is to see whether it it could be uh, a um, reason to act or to believe to some information state. Now, in really kind of adult, at the adult level, you, you will assess that related to what is commonly accepted as true, but it's also possible to have a less sophisticated interpretation. You just take what you believe to be true, to be false, and if it's a reason to act, then it's a directive speech act. If, if it's a reason to believe, then it's a constitutive speech act. So the prediction uh, here is that you could have some quite sophisticated pragmatics without necessarily uh, having uh, the cognitive equipment to attribute complex communicative intention and simply complex uh, mental states. And what I do in this this, um, chapter is to um, review uh, literature on uh, neurotypical linguistic and pragmatic development and on um, autism. And basically, uh, the line of the argument is, is that in autism and in really young children, uh, there is no sophisticated mental state attribution. And if I'm right, what it should should be the case is that um, some pragmatics should still be present. And in particular, if I'm right, what should be there is if you can conceive of different possible worlds, worlds if you can conceive of what can be possibly a reason to believe or what can be possibly a reason to act, then you uh, can interpret uh, utterances as directive and uh, constitutive speech acts. And indeed, there is a lot of evidence that your kids can do that, neurotypical kids. Now, with autism, what happens is that in autism, one of the uh, cognitive characteristics of autism is some lack of cognitive flexibility, some problems with conceiving of different alternatives of the world. And this makes it difficult for the prediction. My prediction would be then that it makes it difficult for these people, for people suffering from autism, to interpret utterances as constitutive or directive speech acts. And I review quite a lot of literature and it tends to be the case. Uh, However, this doesn't mean that in autism there is no pragmatics at all. If uh, you have pragmatic processes that do not, do not require complex mind reading and that do not require cognitive flexibility, then they should be, they could be um, preserved. And I try to argue that this is the case, actually. And um, uh, in fact, it's, um, it's a line of research I'm currently pursuing uh, from a more experimental side. I was going to ask, uh, because our, our time is nearly up, and that the, the whole book um, brings together so many interesting strands of research in many areas for possible expression. I mean, you also mentioned uh, questions that, you, that you're working on in another domain of speech act. What are your own research plans going forward? Um, so, um, uh, as, as, as I already mentioned, uh, the, the, there are really two um, big open questions in the book. The the first is how we should 
conceive of different sentence type, and the second is all the, the research and all the questions about uh, mind reading and pragmatics. And so, um, I, since I finished the book, I, I, I've been work, working on imperatives uh, with Mark Jerry, and we have a book coming out, and we, 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 we're trying to develop our own semantic model now. And um, also um, have projects on autism, trying to see to which extent this cognitive flexibility theory uh, explains things, uh, how um, uh, the prediction I make in the book on the basis of the literature can be uh, confirmed uh, experimentally. So this is something I, I, uh, I do now. Um, I also work. Uh, this is this is another trend in the book um, on the question of belief acquisition from uh, from utterances. So basically, in a nutshell, the idea is that uh, if you have if you don't have necessarily a lot of mind reading involved in utterance interpretation, then it's really likely that uh, belief acquisition from speech is more or less automatic. And so this is something we do uh, with a colleague of mine here uh, who is a social psychologist, Olivier Klein, and we are running also an experimental and experimental project on that. Well, it sounds like extremely strands of fascinating work, and I look forward to reading more about it in the near future. Um, for now, I'd better say, Dekhavsin, thank you very much for your time. Uh, thank you very much for interviewing uh, me. It has been a pleasure. I've been talking to Michal Kissin about his book, From Utterances to Speech Acts. This is Chris Cummins from New Books and Language saying thank you for listening.